It's Curious City. Where we take your questions. About Chicago and the region. And investigate. Report. Explore. From WBEZ. Hey, this is Jesse Dukes, Curious City's audio producer. Over the years, many of you have asked us questions about LGBTQ life in Chicago. We've done a few stories about the history of Boys Town, the dating scene, gay and straight. And I want to bring you a story about another dimension of gay and lesbian life, coming out of the closet. This story was produced by WBEZ's Tony Sarabia back in the year 2000. If you listen to WBEZ in the mornings, you know Tony, the longtime host of our talk program, The Morning Shift. Tony is retiring from WBEZ, and we thought now would be a good time to replay his documentary. It tells the story of several people who came out as gay or lesbian late in life and how that affected their closest relationships. After we play it, stick around for a short chat I did with Tony about how doing the interviews for the documentary helped him personally. Hearing their stories helped me realize even more that, oh yeah, there are other people out there. And even though they were much older than me, I still felt a kinship to what they were going through. That's coming up in a bit. But first, Tony Sarabia's audio documentary, Unlocking the Closet, coming out later in life, courtesy of the WBEZ archives. The first voice you'll hear is Robbie Harris, who was the host of the WBEZ program 848. Coming out of the closet or telling others you're gay or lesbian can be a difficult, even traumatic experience. The fear of rejection is powerful. That fear sometimes leads people to live with their secret longer than they might have. But some older adults, after years of struggling with their sexuality, finally decide to acknowledge to themselves and others that they're gay. Coming out can be especially painful for these people who came of age at a time when homosexuality was considered taboo in this country. It's also painful for their families. WBEZ's Tony Sarabia compiled this look at what it's like for some people to come out later in life. One girl, one boy. You were expected to be a certain way, and so you were, you know, or so I was. I just never considered any other possibility. I got on the train and I couldn't get off because it was the direction I felt I had to go in. I had to become part of the mainstream. And the mainstream was, as far as, as I was concerned at the time, was the heterosexual world and, and all that went with it. When Dean Martin's Memories Are Made of This hit the top of the Billboard pop charts in 1955, America was still years away from the cultural shift that would change many people's attitudes about race, sex, gender, and homosexuality. In 1950s America, homosexuality was anything but mainstream. In fact, it was as acceptable as being a member of the U.S. Communist Party. Both were seen as groups or people with deeply subversive purposes. George Chauncey is the author of Gay New York, Gender, Urban Culture, and the Makings of a Gay Male World, 1890-1940. He's also professor of gay studies at the University of Chicago. It was um, part of the great fear of homosexuals, that they were no longer seen as 
just those butch lesbians or wildly flamboyant drag queens you could pick out a mile away. But they were now understood to be people who could look like so-called normal people, but still harbor these very unnormal um, sexual desires and ways of life. Like the Red Scare, says Chauncey, where red baiters promoted the idea that evil communists could be our neighbors, well, so too could homosexuals. And like those communists, homosexuals had to be rooted out. In 1953, there was President Dwight Eisenhower's Executive Order 10450, requiring any company that had a federal contract to ferret out and fire homosexual employees. There were laws prohibiting bars from serving homosexuals and against a man asking another man in a public place to go home with him. Homosexuality was threatening to what Chauncey calls the happy veneer of 1950s heterosuburbia. There was not going to be any indication in the newspapers of anything positive going on so that the only image you'd have of homosexuals then would be of uh, child molesters, of people who've been caught in bar raids or something. So the stories told were stories of misery and of horrendous types of people and of a criminal underworld that you would want to avoid. you're going to hear are extraordinary, intimate stories that have never been told in public. They're told by people who came of age in the 1950s or early 60s when living an openly gay life was not an option for a lot of people. Instead, many of them married, despite a quiet voice within suggesting everything was not quite right. From the time I was a teenager, there was something different about me. I knew this. The man you just heard from was 16 years old in 1950, growing up in a small northern Illinois town. A tall man with wavy gray hair and a mustache. He's now in his mid-60s. He's a recently retired teacher, married with two grown sons. He's also gay. Because he's out only to his wife and kids and doesn't want other people he knows to know about his homosexuality, he and his wife have requested their names be changed and voices altered. We'll call them Rick and Jill. Different wasn't acceptable, so I tried to fit in as well as I could, but being not very athletic, not very well coordinated, it was difficult to fit in, but I had buddies and, or, you know, one or two, not, I was not the center of a crowd or even in a crowd, but I dated and I didn't deal with my feelings much at all. As a kid, Rick says he was a bookish nerd, not really wanting to be different from the other boys. He didn't feel different just because of a lack of interest in typical boys' play, but because of his desire to, as he puts it, check out other guys all the time, without being obvious about it. But Rick says back then, he never put the word homosexual to his desires. His perceptions of a homosexual mirrored what much of America thought in the 1950s. And so he says he never considered himself gay while growing up. My perception of what a gay guy would be like would be very much fairy-like. He would be very lightweight, very feminine, the lisping queen. And I wasn't that, so I felt kind of safe. Rick was briefly engaged to a woman while attending Northern Illinois University. In 1960, he met his present wife, who was teaching at the same school as Rick. They dated for two years, got married in 1962. And two years after we were married... He told me that he was interested in Tarzan movies 
and that he liked to look at men. He had never touched anyone. He's never had uh, an affair or anything. But he never said he was gay. And we were still having sexual relations, so I blocked it out of my mind. But Rick remembers it differently. He says he did tell his wife he was gay, the same time he told her about the Tarzan movies. But Jill says she doesn't remember ever hearing the word gay come out of Rick's mouth back then. Both do remember saying they loved each other, that this fondness for looking at men was just a small part of who Rick was, and that getting married was the thing to do. Without getting married, I would have had to explain to everybody why I wasn't. And in my family and in my part of society at that time, a confirmed bachelor was a suspicious person. You just didn't do that. You got married or you you went to San Francisco or something. I believed that I could be a good husband and you know, I worried constantly about sex. I, I was never good at it. Don't ask about the honeymoon. Adequate, but not good. It was just expected. I, I needed to be married because not being married would have raised so many questions. I'd have had to move away. He thought he could fool the world repress his homosexuality, and live what many people back then considered to be the American ideal, married with kids, house in the suburbs, and a good career. But he never expected to fool himself. Rick says he's never had sex with a man, came close one time, though, while in the Army. But he says both he and the other soldier got so scared that nothing ever happened. Rick eventually found an outlet lots of other married, closeted gay men have discovered since the Internet explosion, logging onto the numerous gay Internet sites out there. And like many of those men, it was a clandestine activity for Rick. One day in April of 1999, though, Jill came across an email Rick had sent to another man. The message began with the greeting to Tom, the best lover I've ever had, and then went on to describe a sexual fantasy. And then my world came crashing down. My world was not what it used to be. And it was horrendous. And at first, every waking hour, sex was all I thought about because I thought, you know, I have really missed out, and now I know why I missed out. And it's not fair, and why me? And it was not a good last summer. Most days were not good. He wanted to be supportive, but yet he was who he was. But in my mind, I knew that he respected me as a person and still wanted me around. But boy, I would go into lingerie departments and I would just dissolve that I wasn't sexy to my husband. I wasn't attractive to him. And it hurts through and through. There are no official statistics on how many people in this country are married to gay spouses, knowingly or not. Author Amity Pierce Buxton, though, estimates there are about 2 million people who are or have been married to someone who is lesbian, gay, or bisexual. 
I think marriage doesn't contemplate this. Buxton is the author of The Other Side of the Closet, The Coming Out Crisis for Straight Spouses and Their Families, a book that takes a look at what happens to spouses when their partners come out. The California author's former husband is gay. They divorced in 1982 after being married for 25 years. The following year, he came out to her. I read a book called Now That You Know by Betty Fairchild, which was a parent's study of parents adjusting to their children. So I took the view that here my husband was finally able to reach his full potential. So I took a kind of a parent's view. He did what he thought was right to get married. How could I be angry at him? Buxton admits her benevolent response to her husband's revelation may be an exception. There are thousands of stories from straight spouses posted every day on the few existing online support groups telling of confusion, shame, the inability to trust someone of the opposite sex, feelings of sexual rejection, and isolation. For a number of these people, hearing their gay spouses tell them the reason they got married was because they were in love and thought a marriage would make things all right, just doesn't wash. I can't accept that. I find that absolutely self-serving and almost uh, sociopathic because I understand that one cannot change or help, you know, what their gender preference is. I have absolutely no problems with that. But how one manifests it and what one does with their life from that point on, I think, is within every person's control, just as any other action would be. And to involve someone else, a an unwitting victim in a way, um, into the, into this, it's a sham actually, and to create a, a, a pseudo-family and pretend you're someone you're not and suddenly explode this whole myth to your family it is disastrous. That 60-year-old woman from New Jersey had a massive heart attack and nervous breakdown after her husband of 29 years came out to her five years ago. Months after that, he told her he's HIV positive. So far, she's not tested positive. They're now divorced. Author Amity Pierce Buxton believes along with the shock, anger, disbelief, and sadness that comes when they find out their partner is gay, the straight spouse can also, in time, feel a sense of relief. The relief is that you can rewrite the history of your marriage and now you know that you weren't the one that was at fault when you think you were the one that was sexually inadequate along the way. In other words, there was an actual sexual mismatch between the two spouses. There was nothing you could do with it. You're just the wrong gender. So the relief means just relief and in, in, in you're, you're okay. The stages are um, the shock and the relief and, and the hurting and the pain for feeling you were deceived and pretty stupid for not figuring it out. And then facing the fact that this coming out is not, he, this person is not going to change back into being heterosexual and that you're hurt. What usually follows, according to Buxton's research, is a divorce, sometimes immediately. But she says there are exceptions, like Jill and Rick. Oh, it takes a lot of accommodation on both their parts. The wife particularly has to be pretty flexible to um, let her husband either just have gay friends and socialize with them or to have a lover. 
Rick says he doesn't have a gay lover or a circle of gay friends. That helps Jill cope with her unusual marriage. She also has a couple of mantras to help her deal with being married to a gay man. She tells herself Rick's a good husband and that she's enjoyed and still enjoys a good life with him. But there are many moments, little things, she says, when she's reminded her marriage is not quite the way she'd hoped it would be. Well, I couldn't sleep. And I was awake lots in the night, and that's bad, because then you think of all the things that instead of sleeping. And then he got up in the morning, and I hadn't had a lot of sleep, and he got out of bed, and he didn't know I was awake, but it woke me up as he got up, and the first thing he did was went down to check and see if any of his friends were online or if he had a letter from them. And that just makes you feel like you're not that important. And he tells me I'm important. I know I am. I know he wants to talk to his friends. But still, these old things in your head that say, I'm not number one, when basically I am. Jill says she and Rick have become better friends since his coming out, more affectionate. But there's no sex. There were times throughout my interview with Jill and Rick where she would put her arm around him, rub his shoulder or pat him on the knee. He didn't reciprocate. Statistically, Rick and Jill have an uphill battle. Author Amity Pierce Buxton says of the small number of mixed orientation marriages that attempt to remain intact after one of the spouses comes out, only about 7% survive. My name is Patricia. I'm 51 years old, and I am a part-time account manager. I married a wonderful man in 1972, and we lived a happy life. We had, like lots of other couples, we had our ups and downs and our struggles, but um, we seemed to do very well together. We had common interests, such as, uh, oh, golfing, traveling. Um, We seemed to be like-minded uh, we had three children, which we raised. Um, we were active in our community. We lived in a small town in the West, and we were both uh, active citizens, you might say, participated in the community. We're fairly well known in the community. Patricia says back then she never felt like there was something missing in her life. She would feel otherwise in the months after her husband came home with a computer in the spring of 1996. Initially, Patricia wondered why she and her husband needed a computer. But eventually, like many people who discovered the Internet, she found herself spending lots of time logged on. Her favorite site was a women's writing group. That's where Patricia met Anna, a single woman about her own age who lived thousands of miles away. By December of the same year, 1996, even my husband realized that Anna was the best friend that I had in this world. He recognized that. Even though I'd never met her in in real life, he recognized, well, for one thing, he found he was sitting in the living room alone while I was, you know, all my spare time, I was in there on the computer and I was either composing a letter to her or talking to her in in person. And uh, in fact, I can remember, uh, we used to joke back and forth too and Peals of laughter would come from the computer room, and I can remember him one time saying it ought to be illegal to have that much fun on a computer. So he did understand that whatever was going on was very important in my life. Patricia and Anna would soon be spending six hours a day or more together online. 
In March of 1997, on the night before her 25th wedding anniversary, Patricia says strange new feelings overcame her. Eventually, I realized they were turned-on feelings, and I didn't understand this. I thought it was very strange to be feeling that way. So the night that night, uh, I actually attacked my husband in, in bed, you know, which usually he was always the one that did the suggesting, but this time I attacked him. Well, he was not unwilling, and but later... He f- went to sleep happily, and I lay there thinking, that's not it. That's not it. I f- still feel these feelings. And then I realized when I was feeling these feelings was when I was thinking about Anna. At first, Patricia was hoping those feelings would go away. She was very confused. Before she began experiencing those feelings for Anna, before she realized she was in love with her, the two had planned on meeting in person in July of 1997. I allowed myself to start thinking about what if, what if we got together and I said to her something like, want to take a shower? Well, that was it. That was absolutely it. Once I opened that door and allowed myself to say what if and envision it, then that was it. I knew it had to be. And it was. And it was the most wonderful um, experience of my life. Um, I want to say that these feelings, uh, I never had them before for any woman. I recognized I was in love with her in all the other ways before these feelings ever arrived. These feelings, I think, were more or less the hammer that hit me over the head. They were the last things to arrive. All the other things were in place. We'd known each other intimately for almost a year at this point, just as friends. And so this sexual part was the very last thing. But when it was in place, then the whole picture emerged of of how I felt about her. By August, Patricia's husband knew something was going on and pressed her for information. Believe it or not, 25 years married to a person and I didn't know what he would do. I was afraid. He'd he'd never been violent to me, but I was afraid of that. He'd never been unreasonable, but I was afraid of that. I knew that one day he would demand to know in such a way that I would have to answer. And sure enough, that day did happen. He said, we are not leaving this room until you tell me what is going on. He said, I don't care what else happens. We are not leaving this room until you tell me. So I said, okay, what do you want to know? And he said, are you in love with Anna? I said, yes, I am. And then he said, is Anna a man? And I laughed. That was so funny to me. 
And I said, no, she isn't. And his reaction to that was relief. And even he thought that was odd. He said, this is funny because, I, you know, it doesn't bother me because she's a woman. I know it would bother me if she was a man. But he said, somehow, because it's a woman, I, I guess I know I just can't compete or something. Patricia's coming out actually took place in a hotel room while she and her husband were on a trip to Germany. They would not be among the small number of married couples who try to stay together when one of the spouses is gay or lesbian. Patricia's life took a 180-degree turn rather quickly. She and her husband returned from Germany in early October. Two weeks later, she was packing her things and getting ready to move in with Anna. Patricia says her husband helped her pack, telling her not to be too proud to come back if she found out her new life wasn't meant to be. She says he was hoping this was a phase she was going through. Though in love with Anna, Patricia didn't immediately identify herself as a lesbian. She says at first she thought she had fallen in love with a wonderful person and that she would have fallen in love with Anna if she were a man or a woman. That was what I had thought at first. And that's what I thought right up until after we'd lived together for, oh, a couple of months. And then one morning I woke up and I thought to myself, damn, I'm glad she's a woman. <laughs> you know, I realized that really played into it. The fact that she is a woman, I enjoyed that very much. And so then slowly I realized, guess what? I guess I am. Before leaving for Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where she and Anna now live, Patricia came out to some friends, as well as her three grown children. She says her youngest son took the news the hardest, blaming Anna for the breakup of the family. He still refuses to meet his mother's partner. Her oldest daughter, Hallie, though, says she never felt angry. In fact, my husband and I say our little girls all growed up because she's suddenly becoming this woman that if I wasn't her daughter, I, like, I would really want to get to know her and become friends with her. She's, um, she's going to like movies that I would want to go to. She used to go to you know strictly blockbuster movies, and now she's going into a lot of um, other, other sorts of movies, and she goes to Lilith Fair, of all things, and that's something that she, I don't think she ever would have previously done. She's just kind of suddenly blossoming. She's doing poetry readings, and this is all something she, the, the town where I grew up in is um, uh, very, very conservative, and it's very insulated, so to speak, and, and so uh, she's suddenly, she's, I can't think of another term other than blossoming into this new woman. David Wilcox is a 40-year-old advertising executive who lives in Chicago. He's been with his partner for five and a half years. He came out when he was in his early 30s. The thought of coming out to one's parents can be a scary thing. It was for David. He was prepared for one of two responses when he came out to his dad, George. He figured his dad would tell him either, this changes nothing, or I never want to see you again because you're gay. The only thing I wasn't prepared for was when he said, so am I. David's dad, George. I just simply couldn't resist the, um, the, uh, the action that I took and uh, just told him that I was also because I didn't think it was, I guess in the moment, I didn't think it would be fair uh, not to do so. Uh, George Wilcox. Um, I currently live in North Carolina. I'm 73 years old. And uh, I guess my story really begins um, 
back in uh, in April of 1956 when uh, when uh, I married a very wonderful woman. Um, her name was Janet, and and for me it was the uh, kind of a it became, I guess, the, the socially appointed time uh, to be straight because I was not terribly active prior to getting married, but I, you know, fooled around as the expression uh, goes up to that point. And I felt that uh, by sort of pretending or being straight, or at least straight enough to make a heterosexual marriage work was the thing uh, to do. It was, a, it was kind of a social compliance. Um, and I felt good at the time about uh, joining my friends and business associates and neighbors and, and family in that only um, uh, world that was acceptable um, and admired. Uh, um, and I, you know, I think I felt terribly good about myself uh, to have all these people uh, pleased that I'd joined uh, their, their ranks. And in so doing, as I have said many times, um, I think I suppressed uh, this homosexuality. It just, it just, you know, was put in the closet, and and uh, I threw the key away. But George retrieved the key, unlocked the closet, and came back out after his wife died at 51. Like Patricia's, George's life changed almost completely. He found it easy to make the transition, even at his age. He moved to Chicago's gay neighborhood, quickly established a small circle of gay friends, and began dating. But unlike Patricia, it was a while, almost a decade after surprising his son David, that he told his other grown children and the rest of the family that he's gay. Even though George didn't begin living as a gay man again until after his wife's death, David says he felt sad for his mom when he found out his dad was gay. He says it was like his mom had been duped. He recalls times when his mother thought the spark had gone out of the marriage because of her one time saying she didn't think she was attractive anymore to George. Certainly the tragic and painful loss of her at such an early age was what allowed dad to be who he really is. And so in some ways her early, you know, her much too soon uh, passing gave him an opportunity. She gave him an opportunity um, unknowingly um, to be himself. And I think that's a, a, a wonderful thing. And so that's how I've made peace with it. And, and that wasn't that hard. But it is hard for lots of people on both sides of the closet. Author and researcher Amity Pierce Buxton says a number of straight spouses get stuck in their anger, become resentful, and take years to recover. They question their sense of self. For the gay or lesbian spouse, there is relief in finally being able to let go of a long-held secret. But there's also the realization that in the process, lives have been devastated. Fifty years ago, if people publicly identified themselves as a homosexual, they would have likely suffered dramatic and dire consequences. Loss of a job, family support and social respect. A lot has changed since then. Society, says author and gay historian George Chauncey, is more accepting of gays and lesbians. But even today, many still perceive a danger. And so for them, the closet still seems to be the best option. For 848 on WBEZ, I'm Tony Sarabia. I'm Jesse Dukes, and that was Unlocking the Closet, Stories of Coming Out Later in Life. 
an audio documentary produced by WBEZ's Tony Sarabia. It was edited by Robbie Harris, and Tony Sarabia is with me right now in the studio. The tables are turned. Um, Tony, I'm curious, why did you want to do this story? Well, I, I came out when I was 33, and I just felt sort of... Um, you know, kind of alone, being uh, someone who used to be married, someone who at that time had uh, three kids, three sons, and, you know, there, I just didn't feel any connection to anyone like me. And I sort of put that, those feelings back in the closet, <laughs> those particular feelings. And it wasn't until later that I started thinking about it again, because I, I think I still really hadn't come across men or women that were in the same situation. I had joined at least one, I think it was called a gay dads group. But from what I recall, these were men who were adopting kids or in the process or wanted to. And so it wasn't, I didn't feel like anyone really shared my story. So I wanted to find out who else had this story. And so I started doing some digging around, telling people, here's what I'm working on. Do you know anybody who's in this situation? And I struck out a lot before I started getting names. And the father and son that are featured in the piece, I actually got that lead from a former colleague because I started spreading the word everywhere, even here at the station. David and George Wilcox. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and that's not David Wilcox, the Virginia folk singer. No. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? It would. And so... It uh, it took me a while to convince two of the characters in the documentary the the man and the woman who are who at that time were still married and the lesbian couple you know privacy issues I had to do some uh, persuading one of the choices you make in the documentary is you don't just focus on the person who's coming out as gay or lesbian you also interview the spouses. And these are people in some cases who are angry, frustrated, in some cases trying to be forgiving or trying to be warm and supportive. There's a whole variety. Why was it important to tell that part of the story? You know, I, because I, partly my own experience, because there is another side to the story. And I, I didn't want it, you know, as, as a journalist, you do want to include all sides, whatever your story you're working on. So I approached it that way. And there was a part of me that said to myself, how do you want this to come off? Do you, do you want this to come off like celebratory, right? Because even though that's part of the story, you finally get to realize who you are. But in the process, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And I thought, if I leave that part of the story out, I'm going to hear from folks. Mm. And I, I just needed and wanted to be to be fair. Yeah. I'm remembering um, David Wilcox's mom, George's wife, who it, the occasion of his coming out is her death. Right. And at times in her life, and this is tape you include, she says um, she's wondering if she's not attractive enough. Uh, she's worried that she's not attractive enough. And in her case, she never got the relief of knowing it's not it's not you, you know, your your husband is gay. Yeah. Um, he's not going to be attracted to you. I think that's just a powerful insight into that was what needed to happen for George, but it it did come at a cost too. and then and then the couple that was still married. I mean, she was living that. That's the couple you call Rick and Jane. 
Did you keep up with them? Do you know if their marriage lasted after this? You know, I didn't. I did uh, maintain contact with the uh, the lesbian couple who lived in uh, Wisconsin, and she had informed me that her her partner had died since then. Mm. Uh, so that was that was really sad. But you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. I I am curious. Did did the, the married couple make it? Because as you know, in the piece, I do talk to a therapist who deals with this. And she said a lot of times, you know, they start out trying to make it work. And she went through the same thing. And in the end, very few are able to make it work. Was telling the story helpful to you in terms of what you were going through at the, at the time? I think so. It, you know, even though uh, I hadn't afterward met people who still went through what I had gone through outside of that documentary, at least it, it, you know, made me realize, well, clearly, I mean, I I knew in the back of my head I wasn't the only one, but hearing their stories helped me realize even more that, oh, yeah, there are other people out there. And Mm. these were people that were much older than me. Mm. And even though their time was different and harder, I still felt a kinship to what they were going through. Uh, you ended, I, I typed out a quote that you used. Uh, this is your narration. Um, and so this is you writing in 18 years ago, uh, December 2000. 50 years ago, if people had publicly identified themselves as homosexual, they would likely have suffered dramatic consequences, loss of a job, family support, and social respect. A lot has changed since then. Society, says George Chauncey, is more accepting of gays and lesbians, but even today, many still perceive a danger. And so for them, the closet still seems to be the best option. I'm curious if you think if you think that this this holds up or have things changed even in the last 18 years since you worked on this. I mean, certainly things have changed in a number of ways when you look at um, and there is a danger of things. There's always a danger, I think, of things turning back, Mm. you know, with the current administration and the moves against transgender yeah. service members, for one. You know, you always wonder, uh, can same-sex marriage take the same road as uh, abortion, chipping away at the state level? Uh, so those things... People chipping away at same-sex marriage yeah. as, as they've chipped away at, at, abortion, at rights. abortion rights. right? Yeah, so there, for me, there's always that, that danger. And, and my partner and I have talked about it living in rural Iowa. Hmm. You know, what, what is that going to be like for us? Is... There any danger? So far, we haven't. Exp- we, we've been welcomed in in a number of ways from both family and, and friends, and even some, you know, acquaintances. So maybe that's an unfounded fear. But look, the way I look at it is, it doesn't matter what society thinks or how far we've come legislatively. It's it's still. S- <laughs> I'm going to break down. I'm sorry. (laughs) How do I want to put this? You know, in the end, it's it's still individual. You know, it, it doesn't, for whatever reason, if you're not ready, you're not ready. I don't know why I'm breaking down. This is weird. Maybe it's a flood of memories. But 
You know, I mean, you can you can live in a small town and and be afraid. You can live in a highly religious conservative family and you know, it it, it we all have our own reasons for what we do and why we do it. And I don't think for me it was when I when I realized, you know, when I when it really hit, it was like that's it. I I can't stay in the closet, you know, because it was a if that's a whole other thing. But it was a, it was a long process of confusion of compartmentalizing, and that's what a lot of you know the people that I talked to. That's what they said a lot that didn't make it into the documentary mm. because it it can be very uh, complicated. You know, right. so I, I, I think in the end, no matter how far we continue to go, um, it, it still can be really hard for someone to step out of that closet because you, you just don't know how the ones that love you are going to react. And, you know, sometimes they, they react in the best possible way, but sometimes they don't. And you can't choose. And you can't choose. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You just have to say, this is who I am. Yeah. Um, and that's always got to take some courage. Yeah. And, I, you know, these folks, a lot of courage. Yeah, for them. Mm. Can I ask um, how your family weathered your coming out, uh, your ex and kids, and how they are now? Uh, good. You know, my, my former wife and I, we talk all the time, not all the time, but we talk, you know, recently we went out for a beer and just caught up on, you know, compared notes on my sons who are adults. And, um, for the most part, they've, uh, you know, they're fine. Well, um, I thought it was a really powerful documentary and, um, timeless. I didn't know you had that in your your bag of uh, tricks, Tony Saravia. <laughs> I knew you were a great host, and I knew you'd been a reporter, but here's this half-hour brilliant radio documentary, which, with, by the way, really brilliant choices about scoring and music, um, and also... Thanks. And I, I, you made me cry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, thank you for subjecting yourself to that sure. uh, one last time. Uh, I appreciate it. I think you didn't need to talk about this, but um, thank you for going there. Uh, Tony's, I can't say WBEZ's Tony Sarabia because by the time the listeners hear that, uh, I don't think it'll be true anymore. So, goat farmer, Tony right. Sarabia, <laughs> um, thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts and thanks for the documentary. And uh, it's been really nice uh, working with you here these last four years for me. Um, and we wish you well. Thanks, Jesse. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Jesse Dukes. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.